0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 12, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the Raise Hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in order that the hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading, which takes us from 45D to the end of Plato's Philibus. And these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on Mina.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Café, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today is the last of three sessions on the Philibus. The discussions in our last two sessions, which you can listen to on the Plato's Pod podcast, were so amazingly thorough and speak to the unity of conclusion that we might draw today. In our first session a month ago, we encountered the proposition that the good life is the one that mixes pleasure and knowledge, and that everything in existence is a mixture of the unlimited nature of the universe and the limits of becoming in the present. Two weeks ago we considered the question of cause, which Socrates equated to reason, which he said is the cause of everything, and the soul's memory of physical causes, which it experiences with the body in the present, and then the soul's subsequent recollection of cause and reason when it is not experiencing physical events in conjunction with the body. For memory and recollection to function, Socrates argued, as he often does, that there can be no eternal state of flux, but rather that the universe itself must have a soul which applies reason to harmonize the combination of the unlimited and limited. We ended our second session with Socrates' statement that pleasure, which is part of the mixture in the good life, is a matter of judgment, and today we can consider the particular way that philosophers make judgment about the relative limits of pleasure that he says are painted like pictures in our mind. This, he says, requires a special arithmetic, which is unlike the arithmetic we learn in school. That there is a philosopher's arithmetic is perhaps a curious claim, and as we discovered two weeks ago, the contention that the universe has a soul and reason is controversial. I was thinking that we could start today by diving into that controversy, to see if we can find a basis for a different arithmetic. So here are some questions that could start us off. Knowing what we now know about the physics of the universe, is Socrates correct that everything comes to be in opposites? If so, and if it is our task to judge the extent of opposites of pleasure or anything else in the limits of being in the present, where else could we make a correct measure other than in the middle, when the middle partakes of neither extreme? Is the middle therefore without flux? Can reason exist without a soul? If reason does exist, Where else could it exist than in the middle of things if it is to judge correctly the limits of things? If, as I asked two weeks ago, we have souls and we are part of the universe, then does the universe not require at least as much as we do? How could it be that our souls exist as part of the universe, but the universe itself lacks a soul? Further, if the universe is ultimately random and in flux, then how could logic exist without fixed limits? and without a middle which defines the equal extent of two limits for humans to gauge correctly. We can keep these and other questions in mind as we return to the unanswered question from two weeks ago, which is, if it were proved tomorrow that the universe had a soul, mathematically, with physics, with philosophy, with every kind of proof, what difference would that make in our lives? Would we just go on doing as we do? The question remained unanswered because it was held that such a thing could not be empirically proven. But let's consider that the soul is that which obtains but is not subject to empirical proof. And so is Socrates' question about the cause of our soul, if not from a universal soul, therefore sufficient justification for the universe to have a soul? Can it be proven scientifically that the universe does not have a soul? And if so, by what kind of arithmetic? So I wanted to just start with that question and see what what we think about that to get back to that question of, does the universe have a soul? And the unanswered question from two weeks ago, which is, if it did, if it could be proven that it does, or not proven that it does not, then what difference would it make? Steve, your thoughts?
1: Hello, happy Sunday to you.
0: Indeed, nice sunny day today.
1: Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Great in Chicago, too. I'll make this brief. I just think it's a false argument. It, it would be like saying, "Well, let's say what if there were pink unicorns?" So there's no proof. There's no pink unicorns. So if we're basing this question on something that we have no evidence exists, there's really nothing to show that it, you know, should exist. As far as I, you know, from my point of view, that is obviously. But yeah, it just seems like. You know, like I said, it would be like asking if, let's let's examine if as if there's pink unicorns in the universe. That was my only thoughts on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. And a good question. I mean, certainly it is difficult to prove that a soul exists. I guess we have no means of proving that a soul exists, since a soul is not material. And we have so far not produced any empirical means of proving the, non, the not material. But I would ask this question maybe, which is, does anything come to be without a cause? Has science brought us that kind of proof that everything comes to be from a cause? Or can we think of anything that comes to be without a cause?
1: What does it have to do with the soul, though? Why would the soul have to something to do with the cause? We can be brought to be because of the physics, you know, there's boundary, there's physics of the of the universe. You know, there's a Planck distance, and things can only be so small, and particles, there's electromagnetism, and there's all all of the, you know, things of that nature, but how does the soul play into being part of the cause? From my perspective, that would only be as if we're thinking that the universe was put here because of us. You know, Mm. it's a teleological way of looking at it. You know, it's like Winnie the Pooh hearing the sound of bees and thinking, oh, those are bees, those bees, and the sound of bees, made, and they make honey, they make honey for me. So the, the teleological viewpoint from this is that, you know, things are made for us, that old question of, is uh, man the measure of all things?
0: Yeah, and, and I hear what you're saying there was the universe made for us or were we made for the universe? Uh, Maybe there's another way of looking at it from the opposite kind of direction. And so the reason I raised the question of cause was because uh, Socrates' argument is that what is the cause of our souls if it's not the universe? So do our souls have a cause other than the universe? And if the cause of our souls is the universe then does that not mean that the universe itself has a soul and it, that was the logic of his argument and i'm wondering how we address that let's consider that further and, and so let's go to jk and then to josh
2: this question about uh, you're asking about the soul if there's a soul i think it means that whether the universe has a being beyond what you understand is our mortality right is there something? A being beyond our mortal bodies and existence, and if it doesn't, then there's no there's no such thing as a soul, right? That we can uh, attribute to our existence or beyond our existence. You can think of the universe as as uh, either part of us, part of our bodies, part of our minds, our existence. Uh, is there like a, a terminus at the end of the universe, or is this is there only just one universe, or there could be many universes, but Altogether, they they equal one sense of being, right? So, is there one sense of being that persists? And so that wouldn't imply that there's a and the universe is infinite. If there is, and there is a soul, it doesn't have to be a proof. But I mean, you know, you could think of it logically, right?
0: J.K., you were making uh, some interesting points there. You know, is there one sense of being? I really like the way you asked that question, because right. I think it ties very much to uh, what Plato says about being, is that it's infinite and it's unchanging, and therefore sure. it is one, right? Right, right. Because,
2: uh, you know, uh, the question is, did we come from not nothing, and then we end uh, the end of our life, you know, mortality, we go back to nothing. Or is there a kind of a being that we're always a part of? That, isn't that his question? There is the you know the common the scientific uh, understanding that we're part of this Big Bang, and the Big Bang came out of not, nothing. But I think the steady state theory is more reasonable to assume that there is, there is something before the Big Bang.
3: Right,
0: and then that becomes a question of, you know, does everything come to be from a cause? which itself is the universe. So what is the cause of the universe? This maybe gets into the question of the good, which we can talk about today, because that kind of features in the conclusion of this dialogue. The good is cast by Socrates as something that is self-sufficient. And if the universe is self-sufficient, then it doesn't have a beginning and an end. It just kind of, maybe it's more this concept of the big bounce that they talk about rather than the big bang, which which is a start from nothing. Because again, science seems to be telling us now that everything comes to be from a cause. I can't think of anything that science has identified that does not come to be from a cause. Mm-hmm. And so then I think that helps to bolster Socrates' argument, but the soul must have some sort of cause. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I would just remind of uh, what was said in 30D that we talked about two weeks ago, reason belongs to that kind, which is the cause of everything. So reason is equated with because mm-hmm. So, yeah, thanks for raising that that point about being in one sense of being. I think that was a really interesting way of, uh, of putting it. Darren, your thoughts?
3: So I don't have much to add to this, more than what I said last time, but uh, I was literally just looking at that passage you just read out loud. <laughs> that reason belongs to that kind, which is the cause of everything. So I guess my thought about this is that It seems like for Plato, um, or at least Socrates here in his dialogue, the argument for the universe having a soul really goes through the idea that there's reason, that somehow reason exists in not just our minds, but in abstraction in the universe, just given what we see of it and its orderliness and how it's sort of a reflection, like the argument we followed last time. It seems like that Socrates is saying that, we find like causes in our own lives in a little way, but it exists in a bigger way in the universe, and that we can make sense of it. So because it seems like the larger universe, and not just us, there's some orderliness in it, and he associates that with reason, then like through reason, I think he says that, that line you just read, how can it have wisdom and reason without a soul? So, I mean, there's some like very close connection being drawn uh, with having reason and a soul here. So I, I guess that's all I want to say, that the argument, to me at least, seems to really run through this connection with reason. There's definitely more to be said here, or, or more that Plato and Socrates could say, but it's not in this dialogue, at least. It seems to me that is the important connection.
0: For sure, I think, and and uh, I just put on the screen here this section that I read from Phaedrus last time, from 249c from Phaedrus, but a soul that never saw the truth cannot take a human shape since a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms, proceeding to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity. And this particularly struck me with respect to consciousness uh, as perhaps being a prerequisite for consciousness is to be able to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity so we need to unify things with reason i guess and, and maybe that speaks a little bit to what jk was talking about in terms of uh, one sense of being uh, so that maybe that's that unity that we need to make find that one sense of being which is unlimited socrates says everything in the state of being in the present consists of the unlimited as well as limits and so maybe it's this reason's job is to make that unity of the unlimited and the limited so thanks for that perspective, and we'll go to J.K. and then uh, Steve.
2: Yeah, I guess if the, the question is, whether the uh, our reason, you know, the reason that we um, that we apply in terms of measurement, mathematics, and and logic is uh, is up to the task of understanding this ultimate sense of being that persists, and that's where we come up with uh, things like the Big Bang theory, which is one version of it, and we do a lot of calculations and so forth we, we can program computers and so forth put the parts together it seems like the original cause you know may be more uh, more complicated or more in a sense more simple and that cannot be measured you know by our reason because reason tends to think more mechanically and in terms of finality and and mechanics uh, you know this is way of understanding by putting parts together uh, by association of parts but the way you know the life process seems to occur let's say in organic nature right and we come from the uh, organic nature it comes about by by this kind of um dissociation by diversification the egg and the uh you know smirnozoa and the egg you know come together and they there's a fertilizing process that takes place and then the egg diversifies into parts. And it seems like that's more of an organic evolutionary process that this cause is operating on. Uh, Whereas our mechanical reason seems to think of how how things are put together, you know, mechanically. There, There might be a difference there. Maybe there's a limitation to our reason, maybe a certain form of reason that doesn't give us a better understanding.
0: Yeah, and maybe what you're talking about there is reason as it's exercised in the state of becoming where where everything is subject to limits of beginning and end, whereas in the state of being, there are no such limits of beginning and end. It's just infinitely dense, that state of being. And so reason in the state of being needs no beginning and end, but in the state of becoming, in the physical state of becoming, everything physical has a beginning and an end. And it just makes me think of this section here that I have on the screen, one of the sections that I highlighted for today's reading, which is 53E to 55C, talking about this continuous generation. So you you talked about the generation of a human, the egg, and the spermatozoa meeting and generating a human being. And so Socrates makes an interesting statement here in this section where he says, I hold that all ingredients as well as all tools and quite generally all materials are always provided for the sake of some process of generation. I further hold that every process of generation in turn always takes place for the sake of some particular being and that all generation taken together takes place for the sake of being as a whole. And, you know, maybe that's your one sense of being the sake of being as a whole. And when he talks about the sake of some particular being, that's a being in a state of becoming, right? So we need this constant state of generation. And I'm just looking for, yeah, it was in the Phaedo, actually. I I was given cause to go back to the Phaedo and look at some of what it talks about in terms of the soul. I'm just looking here for the section. Yeah, uh, this is at 72a to d in the Phaedo. Uh, Socrates says, consider it in in this way, Cebes, that as I think, we were not wrong to agree. If the two processes of becoming did not always balance each other, as if they were going round in a circle, but generation proceeded from one point to its opposite in a straight line and did not turn back again to the opposite or take any turning, do you realize that all things would ultimately be in the same state, be affected in the same way, and cease to become? So the state of becoming that we exist in is a state of differences. But the state of being, there are no differences. So that's maybe the mixture of the unlimited and the limited that Socrates is talking about. The unlimited is the state of being, which there is no difference. It's just eternal sameness. And then we exist in a state of difference, which is the state of becoming.
2: So you're saying that the becoming and being both coexist together?
0: Yeah, I I think that's what Socrates is saying when he's saying that everything is a mixture of the unlimited and the limit. And in this section that I just read... That everything is in the state of being is in a constant state of generation, and generation is always dealing with differences. There's no generation in the infinite state of being because it's everything is the same. So there's no generation. There's no differences there to generate. But there is generation in the state of becoming. So the state of becoming is like a projection. Uh, it's like a temporary time-bound projection of the state of being. The state of becoming has a past, present, and future. The state of being has none of that. The state of being just is.
2: So is he is he working that out in the Parmenides? Brings in Heraclitus to um, combine the two, mm-hmm. the two, notions. So one one is becoming, the other one is being.
0: I think very much, you know, and and again the conclusion of the Parmenides, if the one is not, then nothing is. I think is is important there, and certainly when he talks about Heraclitus and Parmenides, he also talks about Heraclitus in the Philebus. That question again of whether everything is in a state of flux, and You know, the observation I think that I made last time was that if everything were in a state of flux, then there would be no limits beginning and end. And because there's no limits, there is then no middle. To have limits, you need a beginning and an end. But what distinguishes the beginning from the end is the middle. And if everything were in flux, then what we would call the middle would also be in flux and it wouldn't be the middle as a result. So I think that's this state of becoming has a a middle, which is the present a beginning, which is the past and an end, which is the future, but none of that exists in the state of being. So there is no flux in the state of being. It's, it's just, it's there. There are no changes. What is in flux is time in the state of becoming, but there's always a middle. There's always a middle. And I think when we talk about the philosopher's arithmetic, I think the middle will be very important to that. And we'll get to that. I think shortly. So thank you for those uh, good perspectives and some very helpful ideas. There, we'll uh, see where we go with that. Um, Steve,
1: your thoughts? It seems to me that both becoming and being are concepts, and you know, it's it's almost like circular argument to say that if things are being, they're you know eternal, and if Things couldn't be just in flow because then there'd be no particulars. But then you know, then you say, well, there couldn't if there isn't a whole, then there wouldn't be anything. So it's just you can look at you know from our perspective as humans on you know this planet, we can look at things. We've been able to look at things in two different perspectives: one in the particular and one in the the total, you know, as 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 a whole. So. It doesn't argue that one or the other is correct or the one or the other is, you know, it's just the way of defining things. You know, you could look at a photograph that just is one one instant or you can look at a movie, which is multiple instances. Well, so if you look at a photograph, it can be a very high, high grain. It can be very you can see details very, very well, but you you don't know what happened before or what happened after. But if you look at a movie, you can say, oh, this is what's happening before, this is what's happening afterwards. But then you say, well, what is that, you know, I can't see what's what's on that person's wrist, you know, which which would have been cleared if you looked at it the other way. The, the idea of being as eternity doesn't necessarily seem to flow from any of the uh, arguments. Thanks.
0: And thank you for that really helpful, I think, analogy of the, the movie, and I guess now when we think of movies, everything's kind of digital. But you know, I when I grew up, I was into photography, and I actually took photos on negatives. I developed the negatives, and then I printed them. So you can see in a negative, it's just a continuous strip, uh, and in, in movies shot on negatives, it's just one strip after another, and and so each image is a separate piece of that film strip. And that image, there's no motion in that image, it's a static image. But when you move the images at a certain rate, then it appears to the eye and to the mind as if it's a series of moving images, as if it's reality. And maybe this, in a sense, is what Plato is talking about in the uh, Republic, in the Allegory of the Cave, when he places the analogy of the men on the parapet, the unseen men on the parapet, projecting images onto the wall of the cave. These are moving images that they're making with their hands, using their torches to reflect the uh, the shadows of their hands onto the wall of the cave, and the prisoner thinks that those are realities. So in a sense, it's almost like that analogy, perhaps, of the movie, where you're shining the light through the film strip, and you're moving the film strip at the same time, and so the light changes, and we think that that's motion, but that's maybe a helpful analogy, and certainly as the science progresses, uh, you know, there are some very serious discussions about what's called the holographic principle and whether we are actually part of a holograph. Uh, So that's something that is seriously discussed in today's physics. The other thing that you said, I think, that was quite interesting was uh, that you can look at things in two perspectives. And you said you can look at the particular and the whole. Uh, That ties, I think, to something that we talked about last time, which is that everything comes to be in fractions. And so maybe this is what we're gonna to see today when Socrates talks about the philosopher's arithmetic, is that it's a question of tying all the of the fractions together into a whole. And then maybe that goes back to that uh, part that I read from the Phaedrus, is that it's reason's job to make a unity of many perceptions, right? So if we're seeing this constant projection in front of our eyes, And in front of our five senses, we're taking all of those five senses and we're putting all of those fractions together, those fractional pieces of data together to make a reasoned unity of them. And in the first part of the Philibus, Socrates argues about or warns about not making a unity of things that are not the same. And so first we need to find out what all of the differences are before we start to make our unities and this is maybe a, a quite important job for reason and, and the philosopher's arithmetic that Socrates will will talk about here. So I, I really thought that those were helpful thoughts and I really like the way that you presented them.
2: Uh, James, can I ask you what um, session of the Philobus uh,
0: is that you have on here on the screen here? This is fifty three e to fifty five C, the the part about continuous generation. Oh, yeah, yes, right. And I just wanted to go back, maybe look at this one quickly before we get into the philosopher's arithmetic, which is you know, the part where we're beginning today, near or near the beginning. Where we started at forty-five D. This is forty-eight C to forty-nine B. Uh, this is what the section that I call "Know Thyself." Maybe I'll just read this here quickly. Uh, Socrates says, "What conclusions do you draw from this about the nature of the ridiculous?" protarchus says, "You tell me." Socrates says, it is, in some a kind of vice that derives its name from a special disposition. It is, among the vices, the one with a character that stands in direct opposition to the one recommended by the famous inscription in Delphi. You mean the one that says, know thyself, Socrates? I do. The opposite recommendation would obviously be that we do not know ourselves at all. No doubt. Go on and make a subdivision of this disposition into three, Protarchus. What do you mean? I'm afraid I don't know how to. Socrates says, Are there not necessarily three ways in which it is possible not to know oneself? What are they? says Protarchus. Socrates says, The first way concerns money, if someone thinks himself richer than he in fact is. Protarchus says, Many people certainly share that condition. Socrates goes on, even more consider themselves taller and handsomer than they in fact are, and believe they have other such physical advantages. Definitely. But an overwhelming number are mistaken about the third kind, which belongs to the soul, namely virtue, and believe that they are superior in virtue, although they are not. Very much so, answers Protarchus. And again, among the virtues, is it not especially to wisdom that the largest number of people lay claim, puffing themselves up with quarrels and false pretensions to would be knowledge? Undeniably so, Protarchus answers. Socrates says, It would therefore be quite justified to say that all these conditions are bad quite justified, Protarchus concludes. So Socrates ends this little section by saying, so we must continue with our division of ignorance, Protarchus, if we want to find out where a strange mixture of pleasure and pain this comic malice is. How would you suggest that we further subdivide? In the case of all those who have such a false opinion about themselves, is it not most necessary, as it is for all mankind, that it be combined either with strength and power or with its opposite? The point, I think, here is that as we are tying together this reasoned unity first we have to understand the limits of ourself and i think this is maybe why socrates has brought up this part about what the uh, Oracle oracle Delphi says know thyself and in this section socrates is saying that there are three ways that we cannot know ourself uh, we cannot know ourself in terms of our possessions so that's when he talks about wealth is our it's like an external possession it's a material possession so We often think that we have more material possession than we do. And then the second type of not knowing thyself is not knowing your appearance. So we think that we appear better in others' eyes than we actually do. And then the third way is not knowing one's soul. And I think all of this is to say that we have to know our own limits before we can go out in search of universal limits in the state of becoming. I think that's maybe why he brought this part up here before he gets into the question of the philosopher's arithmetic. Are there any thoughts on this particular part, or should we go into the philosopher's arithmetic? Does this make sense, the the idea of knowing thyself? Let's, Let's take a look then at the philosopher's arithmetic. So this starts at 56d to 59e, and I don't know if we would have a volunteer to read either part. I think what I wanted to do with this is to take this in sections. So maybe we'll read, you know, about a third, and we'll stop and discuss, and read another third, and stop and discuss. So maybe that's a good way of tackling this. It's a it's a longer section. So would we have any volunteers for either part?
2: Yeah, I can, I could take Protagoras.
0: Okay, thanks, J.K. All right. Well, I'll I'll do Socrates. So at 56D, Socrates says, don't we have to agree first that the arithmetic of the many is one thing, and the philosopher's arithmetic is quite another?
2: How could anyone distinguish
0: these two kinds of arithmetic? The difference is by no means small, Protarchus. First, there are those who compute sums of quite unequal units, such as two armies or two herds of cattle, regardless whether they are tiny or huge but then there are others who would not follow their example unless it were guaranteed that none of those infinitely many units differed in the least from any of the others.
2: You explained very well the notable difference among those who make numbers their concern. So it stands to reason that there are those two different kinds of arithmetic.
0: I just thought I would just briefly break there because this goes back, I think, to uh, what I talked about last session or the one before. Uh, when I recall that section of the Theaetetus in which Socrates says there is no thing that in itself is just one thing. And so I think here he's saying that everything is connected. And when he says that two armies are two herds of cattle, I mean, they have the same name, army and cattle, but armies are different in size. Uh, they're composed of different types of people. Cattle are different different sizes, different species. So... When he talks about the arithmetic of the many, that's taking all of these things as single categories, but it's not further breaking the categories down into their individual components. And so when he says, unless it were guaranteed that none of these infinitely many units differed in the least from any of the others, I think is a very important part here. I wanted to come back to that. Uh, but I think it does tie to that section in the Theaetetus where he says that there is nothing that in itself is just one thing, which means that everything else, everything is connected. So I'll go on. Uh, so Socrates says, well then, what about the art of calculating and measuring as builders and merchants use them and the geometry and calculations practiced by philosophers? Shall we say there is one sort of each of them or two?
2: Going by what was said before, I ought to vote for the
0: option that there are two of each sort. Right, but do you realize why we have brought up this question here?
2: Possibly, but I would appreciate it if you answered the question yourself.
0: The aim of our discussion now seems to be, just as it was when we first set it out, to find an analog here to the point we made about pleasure. So now we ought to find out whether there is a difference in purity between different kinds of knowledge in the same way as there was between different kinds of pleasures.
2: This obviously was the purpose of our present question.
0: Okay, let's take a a little break there uh, before we go on. And there they're talking about purity, and so again, it was that link to the arithmetic of the many, in which there wasn't that purity. So, in the example of the armies and the cattle, there are different types of people in the armies, or different species of cattle, or different types of cattle in in herds of cattle. And so, I think what he's saying is that all that's fine as categories. But then when we try to make unities, we have to look for the fundamental basis of things and make sure that we understand all of the differences before we say that all cattle are alike or all armies are alike, or all pleasures are alike, which is really the subject of this dialogue. And what are some thoughts about that? Steve, your thoughts?
1: Well, the, the idea that the way it's stated about one, um, First, those that those compute sums of quite unequal units such as two armies or two herds of cattle, regardless of whether they are tiny or huge. Well, look at it as a a different way that what we're doing, doing that is we're making a representation. So we're representing an army as numerically or using mathematics and we're we're imposing a, a general representation. So... You know, we have to be able to realize that what we're not saying that every aspect of that one is the same, or that one army is like one herd of cows. It's just that what is the same is that our representation of one complete group can be similar. You know, we can we can make that category, and we can we can associate. We can make analogies, just like you're saying, is finding an analogy. Well, there's there is an analogy between a herd of cattle and an army. We can represent them as a total unit. You know, I don't get why there's an importance to to see about the the the, that we have to be able to know every single difference because we're not talking about saying that the two things are the same. We're saying that they have that uh, there's an analogy and that's the representational quality of being able to call them one.
0: Fair enough, and and uh, the properties of members of an army or members of a cattle herd uh, are similar, for sure, uh, but I think the, the question comes back to the mixed life, the good in the mixed life is what they concluded early in, in the dialogue is a mixture of pleasure and knowledge, the issue being that pleasure is unlimited it has no inherent limits. Pleasure has no inherent limits. And so where do we find the limits of pleasure? Just as I think what the analogy that he's drawing here is that where do you define the limits of army? Where do you define the limits of cattle? Where do you define the limits of any particular name, any particular representation that you make? Where do you define the limits of it? And maybe this goes back to our discussion on the Catalyst and and the naming of things and the importance of understanding limits of things, especially if the universe, as Socrates says here, is a mixture of the unlimited and the limit. And so we always need to find the limits. And I think here he's saying that before we say that there is a definite limit, we have to understand all of the fractions that the thing can be divided into before we make a reasoned unity of it, right? So just as, I mean, it's, it's, perhaps more easy to look at a picture of an army and say that's an army. But maybe there are people in that image who are not actually part of the fighting army, you know, maybe they're, they have some other role. And that's part of making a reasoned unity is to understand all of the differences among the parts, even though the representation as a whole might be something that's similar, but we really need to get into that. Those differences I think is what he's saying, because he's examining then different types of pleasures Uh, that we can have and not all pleasures are equal. Uh, Philebus starts the dialogue by saying all pleasures are good. They're all good. Like there's no difference between pleasures. They're just all good. And so now we're getting into the section where Socrates starts to question what is the good itself? He will conclude that the good is self-sufficient. And that is maybe not what applies to pleasures because there are definitely some pleasures like... The example last time itching uh, or scratching an itch, that's kind of a mixture of pain and pleasure at the same time, which is not an undiluted self-sufficient pleasure. So I think that's what he's getting at here is understanding the individual components and the differences in individual components of any representation that we make, but certainly a representation of pleasure before we jump to the conclusion that Philebus did at the beginning, that all pleasures are good, let's understand the differences between pleasures. So I, I hope that addresses uh, the question. And I think it, it was an important question that you asked. So we'll go to Darren.
3: So I just wanna mention one of the implications of um, this section that you just read that I didn't think about when I was reading it, but um, I think it's kind of interesting so regarding the version of mathematics that combines armies and cattles, kind of more inexact and imprecise kind of math that Socrates is suggesting exists and that people do, he actually names some of them. Right, like they belong to the very exact one mathematics, like construction uses. Although there's like different versions, there's two versions of that too. He he starts he keeps going, and then the the less exact kind of sciences he mentions are include. I guess at his time, uh, medicine, agriculture, navigation, and strategy. Like these are the less exact things. But it's interesting to me because, like, there's this math that combines different things in exact ways because the units are different. That actually applies to the very subject of this dialogue, which is how pleasure and knowledge should, because they've concluded early on, you know, in the first week that we did this that the good life has to be a combination of pleasure and knowledge. It can't be just knowledge, which they said they wouldn't accept. And it wouldn't just, just be just pleasure with nothing to do with, you know, thinking or reasoning, which would be like that mollusk. So it's a combination. The dialogue doesn't work this out, but it seems like the clear implication would be like this very subject that at least when trying to identify what a good life would look like for one individual is sort of like these more, again, at his time, more inaccurate sciences and arts, Um, that are more impressionable, uh, rather than, you know, mathematically precise. And, I mean, I think when they do finally come to the conclusion of what the what kind of combination the good life is like at this end of this dialogue, I think it is describing something that's kind of imprecise. I mean, we can get to that later. So yeah, I I just think it's interesting that like, although there's so much effort being (laughs) dedicated to distinguishing the more exact and inexact sciences, Um, At least when it comes to the topic of the dialogue, I I think it actually falls into the more inexact camp. But one thing I would add to that twist, I'll add to that is um, because we're talking about the philosophers of mathematics and what philosophy does. He has this little comment later about philosophy versus rhetoric because Gorgias comes into the picture (laughs) and how Gorgias says, you know, rhetoric is the greatest of all. And, you know, this makes Protarchus have a pause because he's not sure if he sides with Gorgias or Socrates. So the comment I'll make on, um, on the uncertainty of what a good life might mean, how, how, how it mixes and what that mixture will look like for an individual and that being very uncertain. I think what this dialogue shows is that that particular aspect of philosophy or of thinking is blurry and uncertain. But there is certainty, though, and that we know that that will have to be uncertain <laughs> because and we know that because of philosophy, because it's philosophy that enables us to understand what aspect of our thinking is a certain part, which is, is, he's gonna talk about the proportion part, or he has another word for it the measure. He's gonna talk about measure being number one. Like he has his ranking one, two, six. Measure is number one, but measure is like this very abstract thing because it's higher. What's uh, number two is the well proportioned and beautiful. Okay, I'm like, how does that differ? <laughs> but it must be measure is just like much more abstract than even like it's well proportioned and beautiful is already kind of more specific like it's like almost about an individual ready so the number one being measured must be something even super more abstract so anyway like the thing i want to say is that at least philosophy can tell us although like the conclusion will have seems to be that to figure out what the good life is for a person that's a more imprecise sort of science but what the dialogue also helps us discover is that we have a kind of precision about it's in precision. We do have a kind of certainty that that aspect belongs to this world of flux and mixture that he's going to lay out. But the structure itself belongs to philosophy and has that certainty. I, this is something I didn't think about before, but like the fact that he's focused on this just made me think of the fact that the topic of this dialogue belongs to the uncertain part. But then it led me to the thought that, well, there's a certainty about the uncertain part that's also being established in the dialogue.
0: I love the way you said that, you know, that that, uh, philosophy establishes the certainty of uncertainty. And maybe this is part of the measurement challenge is that we not measure from the limits to the middle, but we measure from the middle to the limits. And we're never certain about the limits. We, In fact, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says we cannot be certain about the limits of anything physical that we're measuring. And so instead of measuring from the uncertain limits, maybe what we try to do as philosophers is find the middle. And if everything physical is in a state of flux, is in a state of entropy starting at maximum order and then ending at maximum disorder, I think which is fairly well established, then maybe finding the middle is the key. So is the middle of that state something that is in flux, I don't think logically it can be. It would have to be in some sort of stasis, the middle, because if it were in flux, it wouldn't be the middle. Like There'd just be this constant change. You'd never be able to find beginning and end. And because you can never find beginning and end, you can never find the middle, because the middle is what defines beginning and end. So I think, yeah, this this may be part of the philosopher's arithmetic here and starting, I think, as you said very well, acknowledging that the only certainty is uncertainty. And with that uncertainty, let's not hunt for what we think the limits are, because it can consist of all sorts of different things, which is, I think, what Socrates was saying in this part. But let's find the unities. Let's find the things that are ultimately similar. I would draw one point here near the beginning of that part that we read when Socrates says, unless it were guaranteed that none of these infinitely many units differed in the least from any of the others. The thing I think we now know about physics is that's talking about the quantum because one quantum is like any other quantum and the quantum is the minimum amount of energy in the universe that can cause change or be changed. So that has the capacity of being same, different or being at rest or in change, but that always is. And those are the five fundamental forms set out in a sophist. And so maybe that's this part uh, here, unless it were guaranteed that none of these infinitely many units differed in the least from any of the others, maybe that's an understanding of what we now can equate to to the quantum, which is that minimum unit. One quantum is like every other quantum in the universe, but we know everything physical is made of quanta. Anyway, um, so that w- that was a great discussion on that first part. Maybe we can go on if if you're still okay to to read J.K. I'll just start this next part. So Socrates says, "But what next?" have we not discovered before that different subject matters require different arts and that they have different degrees of certainty?
2: Yes, we did.
0: It is questionable then, whether an art that goes under one name and is commonly treated as one should not rather be treated as two, depending on the difference in certainty and purity. And if this is so, we must ask whether the art has more precision in the hands of the philosopher than its counterpart in the hands of the non-philosopher.
2: That is indeed the question here.
0: So what answer shall we give to it, Protarchus?
2: Socrates, we have come across an amazing difference between the sciences as far as precision
0: is concerned. What will facilitate our answer?
2: Obviously, and let it be said that these sciences are far superior to the other disciplines, but that those among them that are animated by the spirit of the true philosophers are infinitely superior yet in precision and truth in their use of measure and number.
0: Let us settle for this doctrine, and trusting you, we will confidently answer those powerful makers of word traps.
2: What answer shall we give them?
0: That there are two kinds of arithmetic and two kinds of geometry, and a great many other sciences following in their lead, which have the same twofold nature while sharing one name. Do we maintain that these kinds of sciences are the most precise? Certainly. But the power of dialectic would repudiate us if we put any other science of it ahead of her.
2: What science do we mean by that again?
0: Well, clearly everyone would know what science I'm referring to now. For I take it that anyone with any share in reason at all would consider the discipline concerned with being and what is really and forever in every way eternally self-same, by far the truest of all kinds of knowledge. But what is your position? How would you decide this question, Protarchus? Well, let's just take a, a break there and and maybe digest what Socrates and Protarchus have done here. A number of things that they spoke about, a twofold nature, dialectic being the pinnacle of sciences. Uh, and dialectic, I always understand dialectic as looking for the first principles that, or the, the least common denominator of everything. If we're Talking about fractions as we started our dialogue today by talking about fractions, the least common denominator, as being the first principle. And, you know, are there any thoughts on this? And, and in particular, this last part that I uh, underlined on the screen and bolded, uh, what is really and forever in every way, eternally self same, by far the truest of all kinds of knowledge. JK, your thoughts.
2: Well, by the self same, the truest of all knowledge is, is the, uh, it would be the whole, right? Be the, the whole, whole, I think,
0: yeah, right. the, the state uh, of being, wouldn't it? The state of being
2: whole, uh, but, um, right, right. But would that state of being be uh, uh, a state of of eternal being, of, non,
0: um, of stasis? It's a good question. I would say it has capacity, certainly, because Socrates says that everything consists of a measure of this eternal unlimited being plus the limits in becoming so it has potential it's not that when you inject this bit of being into the mixture that you get all of a sudden stasis i think it's more about capacity that it has unlimited capacity okay Um, and and when it's then projected into a state of becoming which is this eternally changing state it provides that eternal measure of capacity which i think is maybe yeah. thinking of it that way is it's something pretty powerful actually and and it it prevents stasis it it, it keeps mm-hmm. this state of generation that we talked about earlier just continually going because we wouldn't want generation ever to stop because then everything as that section from the fetal that i read would stop uh, and, and that certainly can't exist. So we we the one thing about time is that it always continues. It never reaches an end. It, it has individual units that reach an end, beginning, an end, past and future. But time as a whole never reaches an end. So we have to keep time going. And I think that form of generation and always injecting that measure of the unlimited into the mixture keeps things going. That's the way I would see it. So thank you for those questions, and we'll go to Steve and then Darren.
1: With this, uh, the things you have bolted there, what is really and forever in every way eternal, self same, by far the truest of all kinds of knowledge. This is my own personal belief, and I have no nothing to back it up. But it just is. I think that. Uh, for me, that there's there has to be some influence with uh, you know how this has been tra- was translated for you know over a thousand years in hands of uh, Christians. You can, you know, this looks like a a, a document, a, uh, a perspective. You know, it's like cognitive bias. So, you know, like the same way that uh, when you're when you're doing uh, scientific experiments, you have to have a double blind. Well, you know, the people that copied and translated Plato from you know what the year like 400 AD to the uh, renaissance was all uh, you know christians and you know this is just like this is like we they're talking about a god you know a god in the in the christian definition of a god and being because the whole is it's rarefying uh being and the talk about limits if you look at being so my question is like and maybe, um, James, just a little more definition on on the being. So if I'm looking at this chair in my room, this chair is being. So it's being, but it's not infinite. It's not always. And, you know, the idea of being is a way that I, you know, homo sapien, has brain developed in a way to describe what this chair is that's sitting in front of me. How it gets rarefied into this something special. So that's 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 what I'm having trouble understand if maybe you could address that. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, and I appreciate the question. it's it's an important one, and I think that arriving that understanding of the distinction between being and becoming is so critical to Plato. When you said your chair is being, I would say maybe your chair is becoming what is in being is the idea of chair uh, or the limits of that which we call chair you know that representation of chair has some sort of permanent fixed limits and that again i think is going back to what we discussed in the cratylus is a thing which could be a physical thing or an object of thought a thing in order for man to be the measure of things we have to have an understanding of its limits and so the chair while it seems like a solid object it's actually experiencing entropy as you watch it. You just can't see the entropy and you know, you might not see the entropy for 20 years until the chair becomes weather worn and beaten and, and less than what it is now. But that chair is changing just as our bodies are constantly changing. Their cells are always dying in our bodies and always being generated in our bodies. Nothing remains the same. So I think that's maybe what he's talking about here—eternally self-same. What would be an example
1: of being that mm-hmm. you could give?
0: Yeah, what would be an example of being is the universe. I think that's that would be my answer. Well, isn't, and, that, isn't
1: that isn't the universe doing the same thing as a chair?
0: Yeah,
1: the universe is,
0: and that's where I think we have to understand or. or maybe arrive at some conclusion on whether everything is in flux. Uh, If everything is in flux, then yes, the universe would be similar to the chair, would be in this constant state of entropy. But I think what Socrates is saying is that it is not all in flux and that there is at least one point, which is the middle, the half point, which is not in flux. And that's the only way we can get limits is if we have a middle that is not in flux, because if we had a point if every point were in flux, we would never have a middle, and we, if we never had a middle, we would never have a beginning and an end in the limits of the state of becoming. So the chair is in the state of becoming. The chair has certain limits, physical limits. It has
1: a shape. Uh, so how does it ever be if there's if, so? Yeah. It's, is it, or the middle point is okay right now? Oh, it's being. It is right now. Yeah. So you can it's sounds like circular reasoning it's like yeah. you know in order for it to be, be you know it has to be becoming so everything has to be becoming but you couldn't have everything be becoming cuz then everything would be in a state of flux so right. there has to be being so then what is right. being well right. you know yeah, that that's right. my last point on that. Yeah.
0: it's a, it's a great point and i think that takes me back to the timaeus where timaeus 28a socrates says that being is only accessible to the mind it's and, and accessible to reason it's not accessible to the physical senses so you can't look at an object and say that it's being um, you can only look at an object and say that it's becoming and he actually goes on in the Timaeus about talking about our misuse of words like the word is he says that we we misuse the word is because nothing ever is it's always becoming and the state of being is more a an abstract state that is accessible only to the mind but the mind has that, half point that it can that it can make its measurements from and that's what I said last time I think that when we make our measurements we're not measuring from the limits because we don't know what the limits are in time we don't know what that chair is going to become in time well we know it'll eventually become a pile of dust we don't know where that pile of dust is going to be we don't know what the universe is going to be like at that point in time but we do know that it's its limits are going to change over time uh, so we must make our measurement from some other point than the beginning and the end of that particular thing in a state of becoming. And that's why I think we make our measurement, our, our sense of reason measures from the middle to what we perceive to be the limits. And then we're using a reason to make a unity of it, as as he said in the Phaedrus. So the being is something that we just cannot, excess with our five senses. Our five senses are limited to the state of becoming, but a reason presides over all of this data that's being received and and makes a unity of this data. Uh, And I think that's the power of the mind. And when Socrates says that the universe has a soul, I think he's saying that the universe has that capacity. The universe has a middle, and that middle belongs to none of the extremes that are in a state of becoming. That middle is in its own itself, it is self-sufficient, and and that's what we can access with our minds. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And I think when um, when there's opposition to the idea that the universe has a soul, um, I can see that the opposition is, you know, generated by the fact that we can't measure the universe's soul. We can't access it with the five senses. But I think it's a very powerful idea if we then think that our soul is connected to the universal soul. That's incredibly powerful. I am all for that idea. I don't want to think that my soul is tied to this limited state of becoming. I would like to think that my soul is more timeless than that. And I think the idea that the universe has a soul uh, makes that kind of uh, connection to me that is is something that I'm going to look for that. I'm going to look for that connection. And I think we'll find it at the half point. I just wanted to say too, you know, the concept of the universe uh, as just an infinite amount of information. Uh, Every quantum in the universe stores a bit of information. And I think the half point is, you know, maybe this twofold nature that Socrates is talking about. It's almost like there's a mirror right in the middle of the universe. And one side of it is comparing the information that's on the other side and when the mirror agrees then that's complete and so the universe is like this complete self mirroring self sufficient device that stores all of the information that ever is was or will be um so that's the way i would see it uh, again I, it, to me it's a powerful idea but it's something that we can only have an ideas i think you know when we use names, which is what Socrates warned about in the Cratylus, is we have to make sure we understand the limits of the name. So if we're categorizing something as chair, well, yes, chair can have, uh, can have a limitless existence in time, but as an idea. Individual chairs come and go, but as an idea, chair can have an unlimited existence over time. So I don't know, if I, I, I've gone on a little bit long, I think, on that answer, but hopefully that provides some Uh, some response I think to the very good question that you asked so thank you for that and uh, Darren your thoughts
3: I'm still gathering my thoughts about this um what I want to say but just give it a shot here I guess what stood out so all, all that stuff all your discussion was interesting and maybe okay maybe I'll make a quick comment on what Steve was talking about too I mean I think Plato does come from uh, like obviously in his historical context people did believe in gods. Um and I think Plato um it it, it seems like it seems like at, at this historical period, at least some people write this, that belief in the Greek pantheon of gods was already starting to crumble a bit. And so there was a lot of questioning um in this period. And um I think Plato might have been just transferring some of those ideas and feelings, but maybe to more to a more universal source that he can place on a rational or more rational basis. So, but I don't know, that's just like my, <laughs> my own, um, musing about that, uh, history there. And, uh, so what I wanted to, okay. So regarding this passage, um, another thing that interested me, I guess, is how he brings this idea of, um, those powerful makers who were traps back into the picture. And of course, like a little bit later on, which we didn't get to, um, in the reading, like the Gorgias comes back into the picture. And we know that Protarchus is uh, the intro in the Hackett version tells us that Protarchus's father was Gorgias biggest patron (laughs) Um, and admirer. So um, there's definitely, yeah, some interesting connection with um, rhetoric and sophistry here and a sophist here. So I think it's interesting that this, Response: um, This view about different kinds of arithmetic and you know the philosophers' arithmetic and so on is framed as an answer to those powerful makers of word traps. And you know this is the thing that one of the things that most impressed me about the uh, reading in the first week is that they talk about the paradoxes of oneness that we you know we we originally saw in the Parmenides, but the attitude towards them were was so new to me that. Uh, attitude that i mean that plato seems to explicitly have towards such paradoxes because um like in, in that reading the first week he presents them as things to get out of like they're uh, precisely the language here as a trap as a word trap <laughs> and uh so which is why i compared it to mino's paradox um in the, in our discussion the first week and the goal was to get us unstuck you know and to or or to get maybe protarchus and Philebus unstuck from these he even calls them like childish like playthings. like people just go back and forth between oh everything's in flux and everything is one and you know it never comes to anything he even denies that this is knowledge to say any of that to say you know there's oneness or you know everything's unlimited and in flux um the knowledge is in the middle which everyone like skips over (laughs) um so when they sort of entertain these paradoxes and I i remember another um sort of phrase that i really enjoyed from that first week was how these paradoxes that people like they think they're doing philosophy or whatever but it actually just keeps them safe and sound i think that was a phrase that was used it keeps them safe and sound it actually stops thinking like a parrot which is like itself a bit paradox because like a lot of I, I guess a lot of people like think that philosophical paradox is precisely the thing that gets us thinking but no, like here, like it was described in the first week, how it's something that we're stuck in, and our point is to try to get out of these traps. So I think what happens, so like bringing the rest of the dialogue, the rest of the reading, of the picture. I think what has happened is that like by this point, and by the end of the dialogue, we get a much more, um, we actually get a fairly complex picture of what pleasure is like it's not like everything is pleasure how can there be different kinds of pleasures and you know everything good is pleasure you know that that, that was a trap that philipus was in and the suggestion i guess in the dialogue is that that kind of that, that trap that philipus was in had, had to do with maybe like he, he didn't have certain instruments or ideas of philosophy that enabled him to like think out of it and we're, we're, we're being presented like the, the dialogue sort of systematically goes through various It's it's actually kind of bewildering. (laughs) It jumps from idea to idea, and like we get to a point where we're able to make distinctions in pleasure. So it's not like it's not like Philippus who says, "Oh, how can one pleasure be better or worse than another pleasure?" Is pleasure? So we have all these tools, philosophical tools, that enable us to make distinctions in pleasure, but also knowledge. Like the subject here is we're making distinctions in knowledge, and then like when you put them together, you get a fairly you know you can you can start thinking a lot of different things. We're no longer stuck in though pleasure is pleasure. We have a, we're, we're at a point where we're able to think about mixtures and the complex ways in which they can combine for an individual and how it might might make a good life. Um, and one more thing I'll add to this is that um, another distinction we're able to think now is, um, and this ties back to what James was talking about earlier, is uh, distinctions in knowledge. But the ones that Socrates wants to draw here Distinctions that Socrates wants to draw here are between certainty and purity, and so we're able to think about knowledge, but we have this sort of meta understanding of like what kind of knowledge is more certain and what is less certain. So you know, maybe in that way, we don't <laughs> we don't trick ourselves, and you know, we know. It. So in a sense, knowing ourselves is knowing our own thinking, and um, and the characteristics of that thinking. And so, in fact, I think, um, I don't know if we got to this in the in the passage up um James read at that I don't think we got there, but I think it's it probably comes later on after the section on Gorgias that comes up. but I, I think he even says like pretty much I think he pretty much lumps like all knowledge of like the world itself as just opinion. I'm pretty sure he class we can look at it more carefully but. I'm pretty sure he just classifies as all opinion and like real knowledge, I, I get the sense he's saying is like, you know, math or something like, or physics or something like that. Like that's real knowledge. Whereas like any knowledge of like things in the world or objects and like all that, like it's, it's not like anything goes, but it's, he calls it opinion because it has much less certainty. You know, we don't want to become a filibus, but we shouldn't fool ourselves to think it has more certainty than it does. So I guess my point was that I just think it's interesting that, you know, this passage that James read is framed in terms of a response to those, uh, the powerful makers of word traps, which is, of course, how the dialogue also began, you know, this trap that Philippus was stuck in. Thinking of it in that frame, it sheds a light on what's going on here. Oh, and if I may, I know I went a long time. I'll make this really quick. Maybe we can come back to this later. So actually, I think, like, talking about the framing is, like, um, appropriate and apt because with the ending... I think also something to do with this because um we we can we can take a lot more into this mysterious ending of this dialogue. I mean I I'm talking about the very ending, like the very last lines. And um where like Socrates wants to go because you know we we know it's like almost midnight and it's like super late. But like it's curious because um it's not Socrates who leaves us in Aporia. It's Socrates who wants to get out of there, but it's Protarchus who leaves us in with aporia, which is so unusual in a platonic dialogue. I was like, what the hell is going on? And so it's almost like to me, it suggested that Protarchus, and I don't know about Philip, is quiet, like is no longer stuck in the trap. It's like the dialogue is almost showing that Socrates is like for Socrates, it's like mission accomplished. Protarchus wants to keep has all these questions, he wants to keep thinking, he's no longer like self-satisfied, he's no longer safe and sound. Um, but anyway, I think that's one way of reading the ending, but we can get back to this. I, I have other ideas, but I just think it's interesting that it's Protarchus who ends up leaving as a pour it, and Socrates who wants to like get out of there, which is so different from other endings. I mean, play the dialogues.
0: I really like the way you put that, actually. I hadn't thought about that, about the ending. Uh, what I was focusing on the ending is when Protarchus says, I will remind you. And that makes me think, well, is this whole discussion on memory and recollection, which is in this dialogue. And so maybe that's a, a point where he's saying his soul will take an action in the future. And so that really kind of ties to that. But I like the way you said it as well. So the idea that you raised of getting unstuck, I think, is is very helpful. And knowing ourselves is knowing our thinking. I really like the way you said that. I hadn't thought about that myself. But knowing the limits of your own thinking then can help you realize when you're stuck and when you need to get unstuck. I think that's a very important idea. So thank you for for raising that. I, I definitely learned from that. And then the whole question of this continuous division, which uh, Socrates says we have to keep dividing things until we find the unities. We can't just say there's a unity until we've reached the end of division. And in fact, continuous division was a feature of the sophist so it's very consistent from one dialogue to another um the this necessity for continuous division and and the place of reason in that continuous division process so so thank you for those thoughts um jk
2: yeah you said that the um the thinking is really an awareness also of one's thinking right and so the question of, you know, um, the, uh, realizing is eternally self-same, you know, by far the truest of all kinds of knowledge. Yeah. That seems to be, you know, um, something that maybe, you know, it's not acknowledged that, that, that might be a limit of what's, what our thinking could achieve. I mean, to assume that we can know what is eternally self-same, right? I mean, we know that things are in the process of, um, becoming and that's our maybe the um, tells us that there are there's a limit to to that because we can never know what the you know what that end of becoming is and and it seems to assume that you know that we can know the end of that becoming
0: by understanding what is eternally the same that's a, a good point and, and so to the extent that maybe there is no limit to becoming, becoming just continually goes on. Becoming is in the present and there's no limit to how long the present goes on. So we can never reach a limit of becoming. But you know, maybe what you just said reminded me of that part of what uh, Socrates says about dialectic being the kind of highest science. And that's the science that allows us to find the first principles of a thing. And so maybe that's our job and that's not something that we can do individually, it's something that we need to do together. And that's maybe a meeting of the minds, Uh, not just a single mind, but a meeting of the minds to go back and forth, testing each other's reason and limits. And once we've tested those limits, we arrive at that half point where everything has been tested. And we know at the half point that there are two definite limits from that half point. And maybe that's the power of dialectic is it gets us to that half point. And at that half point, that's ideally where there is zero difference at the half point. We arrive at a point where there is no difference, and then that is what is eternally self-same. So the connection between zero and one half, I think, is at that middle point in terms of of the logic of things in a state of becoming. Things in a state of flux have to reconcile, I think, to that half point where there is zero difference. So maybe that's a thought that we can keep in terms of mathematics, I mean, certainly zero and one half are the two key values in a very famous hypothesis by Bernard Riemann, which for which there's a million dollar prize uh, by the Clay Mathematics Institute for a published mathematician to provide a mathematical solution to. But I wonder if it's actually more than just a mathematical hypothesis, whether it's a hypothesis about universal logic, that there has to be zero difference at the half point since everything comes to be in equals and opposites, isn't
2: that the um, idealism of uh, building faster and bigger computers in order to compute? Uh, you know the um, and get to that um, understanding of that limit,
0: right? Right, and 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 that's premised on the uh, notion that that limit could be found. But what if we realize that? There is no limit to the state of becoming. There is no limit to the present, and therefore it's non-computable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, I think the word would be transcendental, and I use that in the mathematical sense that right. it's not subject to arithmetic. Uh, that's my sure. understanding of what transcendental means. It's not subject to arith- arithmetic, which means it's not subject to equal, which means it's not computable, mm-hmm. and maybe that's the basis of Riemann's hypothesis and the the reason. That maybe it's not just a mathematical problem. It's a it's a it's a universal function that's built in there to provide that kind of mirror in the middle, uh, in which the universe is twofold. Uh, one side matches exactly equally the opposite side, and that way the universe is true to itself, and therefore really and forever in every way eternally self same, and by far the truest. To use the, the words from this section that's you know maybe that's the mathematics of or right. the arithmetic of the philosopher. so
2: if it's if it's non-computable then um it would be also um not logical to to jump to the conclusion that there is a uh, a limit to the ultimate being to this self same choice of all kinds of knowledge um wouldn't it be isn't the where we were at uh, with co- quantum physics that we're we're not able to understand what that is because it's it's within the quantum realm
0: right Yeah, I think that's that's a good observation. and you know one quantum being the same as every other quantum, as I said earlier, why is it that observation changes the organization of the quanta? So that tells us that our our thoughts, our, our, our capacity of observation actually has an effect on the quanta. And then the quanta then maybe aren't just physical things uh, subject to limits, but maybe they are part of the unlimited as well. So maybe there's a point where the quanta, which make up everything physical, you know, the atoms of of everything are fundamentally made up of quanta, but the quanta also respond to observation, which is not physical. And so there seems to be some connection between the physical and the non-physical here that we need to understand, perhaps. So. And and you know certainly to the extent that we're trying to compute some sort of universal limits or find some sort of theory of everything, maybe somewhere in there acknowledgement needs to be given to the fact that things are not finite. Things are both physical and they're objects of thought, uh, and maybe they're not finite. And uh, in, in certainly, in objects of thought, are not finite. So, Steve, your thoughts?
1: Well, my thoughts would not be finite. But um, I would only point out that that it's not necessarily universally agreed that uh, observation changes quanta. There's a lot of a lot of dispute that our perception of the quantum world seems sees something different when we observe it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are changing it. That means that our observation is. Mm-hmm. And to say that the limit of thoughts is unlimited. Seems like a, d- a direct contradiction because the fact that we are thinking organic beings that are going to, you know, born and die, and our thinking is being produced, it seems like it's mechanically produced by the biological functions of a living organism. So the idea that there's something special about the thinking seems to be a cognitive bias because we are thinking people and, you know, we think that we're we special, and, uh, you know, the thinking seems to be definitely something that's finite. My thinking will no longer be thinking once I'm, uh, you know, longer here, but then the idea that it's the concept of thinking, well, that's a concept is something that was produced on the earth and, you know, within a limited time span, a very small time span of the universe, and, you know, that's that's also limited also, so we're uh, my... Thoughts
0: on that? And fair enough. And what you said about the quantum may well be true. Is that maybe observation doesn't affect it? But maybe that is a sign of what uh, Darren talked about earlier. Is that philosophy gives us certainty that there is uncertainty, and so right now we're uncertain, and so maybe it becomes a philosophical question. So it's it's fair to point that out. I think that that's something that is not uh, has not been subjected to limits because we don't know what the limits are and then you know in terms of thought yes um, we are physical beings and we only last a certain amount of time that's that's a certainty we don't none of us is immortal but I would argue that your thoughts Steve in this recording, your valuable and good thoughts will go on in time and, and you know hopefully I mean it, it's you know who knows who, who might listen to this recording in a hundred years or a thousand years. But I'd like to think that there's some possibility, at least, that somebody will, and that maybe we will have discussed things here that they hadn't thought of. Certainly, you know, I think that point Darren brought up that I hadn't thought of before in terms of the ending of this dialogue that's a thought that has affected me. And I think that will go on in a recording and may affect others. So maybe thoughts are not just tied to the physical body, but there is uh, a a recording uh, you know, a storage of that information because ultimately the information has nowhere else to go. It's in this universe. So the universe, I th- I'm coming to a view that the universe is an information storage device. It stores every bit of information, whether it's in our thoughts or whether it's in the physical things, because the information has nowhere else to go. Uh, so the information has to stay in this complete system. So I'd like to think that my thoughts are not finite, and that they will go on. Bef- you know, after my body is no longer here, so
1: just like the chair, there's entropy to that yeah. too. So yeah, exactly. you now it's the same. Yeah, yeah it yeah. might. Let's say it goes on a billion years. You know, let's say whatever, ten billion. After mm-hmm. the Earth of the Sun, the Sun is yeah. gone. The Earth has gone. The Milky Way galaxy is is all blanked out. Or say. Two hundred billion years or a trillion years; those are all finite quantities. And you know, to say that, where did my thoughts came from? Well, you know, I had to eat food. I had to generate energy. It came from somewhere. It was in an, it was in another form. So yeah, that's whatever those components are that are my thoughts at this point that's going to go on into other forms and with the idea of entropy it's going to be spread out thinner and thinner and thinner mm-hmm. but it's always going to be there but it's not special to my thoughts it was something else before it was something else after the things that it were before was at the thoughts of a carbon and oxygen molecule so it's the idea again what you were talking about with the heisenberg uncertainty you know you can you look at something in motion, or you, can, you can't you can know the motion and you can't know the mass at the same time. So if you can't look at a, a particular thought and say it's this certain thing that's going to last forever, because it is in flux. Mm-hmm.
0: It's in flux, but maybe it's a component of other thoughts. So the thought on its own does not persist. I think you're quite right in that. But then that takes me back to Theaetetus, and there is no thing that in itself is just one thing. So that's to say that everything's connected. It's your thoughts connect to everything else and everybody else's thoughts. And somehow there's this resonance, you know, again, to, to go back to that twofold image of the universe is this just this one mirror in the middle of it that uh, compares one side to the other and says, "Yep, they agree. It's a complete system. All things will be preserved in that. But there's connections between all of those things. And those connections will be preserved just change over the the connections will change over time just kind of like the neurons in your brain those connections are always changing but that doesn't mean that the information that was there is lost it's still preserved it's just in a different form maybe and and maybe that's what uh, the philibus is ultimately saying is that we need to find the original form Uh, maybe this is the philosopher's arithmetic is finding the original form and maybe that's where we find the, the, we're looking for the zero difference and in the zero difference, there would be no doubt at that point that that was the original form. Now, again, are we able to find that in a state of becoming? No, but in dialectic, uh, maybe we have a better chance of reaching that level. So um, yeah, very, very good thoughts. I, I, I don't have the answers, but I think you raised some very good points worth considering. So Darren, your views
3: uh well on the issue of whether we can know being or whether we can you know reach that level of knowledge <laughs> i think to me plato often proposes the aim the suggestion that there might be such a thing as you know forms and when we know them then we would have knowledge but i guess what i notice at least is that he they're proposed, but he also has qualifications and he's circumspect about whether we can completely attain that. I think it just comes up. It's just the thing in the dialogues. So he says, for instance, at 59C, this is their conclusion of their discussion. He says, either we will find certainty, purity, truth, and what we may call integrity among the things that are forever in the same state without anything mixed in it. Or we will find it in what comes as close as possible to it. (laughs) And everything else has to be called second rate and inferior. So even amongst this knowledge of the good or, you know, what is completely unchanging and pure, he says there is a kind of distinction there between that itself and then what might come close as possible to it. And then beneath that is everything else. And another way uh, this occurs, interestingly, in this dialogue is um, he talks about how this is quite close to the conclusion he says if we cannot capture the good in one form okay that's what we're supposedly supposed to aim for but then he says we will have to take hold of it in a conjunction of three (laughs) beauty proportion and truth so instead of talking about the good as what's responsible for the mixture of pleasure and knowledge that's a good life he says it's all three in conjunction beauty proportion and truth because beauty, proportion, and truth is like a little closer to us, a little less abstract than the good. They're like sort of um, signposts towards it. Insofar as we find these three things, then you know maybe we're in the right direction. I think this idea of heading towards the good, it's not just something we want just in the abstract as a, as a bit of knowledge, right? Like I think it's precisely the directionality of it—the fact that we're moving closer, but maybe not getting to it—as frustrating as that might sound, maybe. Um, but for Plato, it suggests that it's almost like we're meant to be in that state as human beings. Maybe I don't know. Maybe in the after, if there's an afterlife, maybe it'll be different. But like as human beings, it's like the thing that we should most want. So of course, we get this image in the Phaedrus. But uh, since it's, we're nearing the end of our discussion, I, I just want to do throw want to throw this point in here about. The mixture that is the good life that's being described, because I find it's unique amongst Plato's dialogues, and I learned a lot about Plato's views and this thought from reading this. I've read almost all the dialogues now, like partly thanks to James's um <laughs> meeting. So thank you, James, for this opportunity <laughs> to read my all this my pleasure. Sometimes, <laughs> right, and because sometimes it, it, it's hard, it could be hard to like find a time or motivation if you know there isn't something set in stone. Um, there isn't a reason. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the thing I want to say is, um okay, so we finally get to, you know, discussing the mixture of pleasure and knowledge here that constitutes a best life for us. I think the picture that's described is can look different for different people precisely because it's a mixture and it has to be kind of proportion. So presumably that would be different <laughs> for different people. So I like the idea. I like this idea because it's... um like ecumenical view like it's capacious. It's like it has room for everyone. So that's good. You know, it's I I don't think he's talking about how like the good life is like you know, life of you know just learning or whatever. He does describe like certain people. He says like few people (laughs) like do find that pleasurable, but not everyone. But that's okay because the good is not in knowledge per se or pleasure per se. It's in a kind of mixture. And that mixture could be different for different people. So I like that. The good is the proportion, so it's not in any substantive view of pleasure or knowledge per se. So I appreciate that. I'm getting back to this idea of like approaching, you know, knowledge of being and whether we can know that and what kind of knowledge we can have. So one of the things he says about this state, um, this mixed life, he calls, um, he says it it's a road that leads us towards the good. Um, he also says that our aim is to discover in this mixture what the good is in man and in the universe and to get some vision of the nature of the good itself and he also says to not to seek the good in the unmixed life but in the mixed one okay so he says these things in various places you can look up the context and all that but what was interesting to me is that again this idea about directionality that once we find a good life for us so again this this is again there's there's resonances of from the Phaedrus here about what a meaningful and good life is and what it means to you know have you know the importance of this uh feeling of love is described in the Phaedrus. here it's described in a different way but it's it described as kind of mixed life which involves right proportion of knowledge and pleasure but it's one that leads us towards the good to me to me that's the important part it's mm-hmm. it's like the good life it's not one where we're like safe and sound it's one where like continuously it's, a, it's this kind of search it just has right. a direction that we're we're, we're not satisfied yeah. So um, I guess, it, yeah, this comes up to the idea about whether we can know being, but I, I don't know if like Plato thinks we'll ever attain as human beings, but it's the idea of getting closer to it and um, maybe sometimes attaining what is the thing that's next closest to it, but maybe right. not the good itself right. that is available to us and maybe yeah. universally available.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's maybe no Absolutes, But it's a, a guide um, to the road, to uh, the path, to the good life, which that's a term that was used here. We're running out of time, unfortunately, so we won't be able to get all of that. But I did want to talk a little bit about the good. And I'm glad that you raised this last part of the reading for the Philosopher's Arithmetic, which we won't have time to finish that part of the reading But the part that you did highlight, I think, was good, that uh, either we will find certainty, purity, truth, and what we may call integrity among the things that are forever in the same state without anything mixed in it, or we will find it in what comes as close as possible to it. Everything else has to be called second rate and inferior. And then maybe I'll just briefly read the ending to this dialogue about measure being the key thing, being able to measure, and that maybe goes back to the question of, is man the measure of all things? which is the position that Protagoras took in the Theaetetus. And actually the next dialogue that we will do is the Protagoras. I'll just mention it here in case I forget at the end that we'll do Protagoras to 328d. And that dialogue, actually, Protagoras makes this beautiful presentation, very compelling presentation, very compelling argument up to that point. And we are left to wonder whether maybe there is uh, the possibility that man is the measure of things but i think as you said um you know maybe we don't want that to be the case because uh, if it were and if we were to find the theory of everything then what would be left to discover what would life be like at that point if we discovered the theory of ever if we discovered the reason for everything if we attained what socrates says is universal soul which is the reason for everything so if if our computations and everything somehow led us to the reason for everything which would theoretically be the universal soul, then what would be left for us? And that's why I started this episode by asking that question. What would have how would our lives change if we could u- locate the universal soul, the universal reason for everything? I think it would change things pretty fundamentally, and I'm not sure that would be the best change because then why would we be would we ever be seeking the good? what would be the purpose of life at that point? So lots of philosophy in that and, and certainly uh, you raised that question and, and I, I like the way you you said the ecumenical approach that it provides room for everyone. so no one is the judge of what is good. it's It's something that comes out in dialogue and dialectic between all of us. so, so thanks for that and thanks for bringing us to that last point of that reading of the philosopher's arithmetic and uh, we'll go to Steve and then I'll, I'll read the the last part about measurement. So maybe what I'll do is I'll just briefly mention the other parts that I highlighted for this. So the the second part, um, I was going to talk about the good, that's from 59E to 61B. And that's where the idea is brought forth that the good is self-sufficient. And I think that idea came up at the beginning of the dialogue. If knowledge were good, then that would be self-sufficient and you wouldn't need anything other. If pleasure was the good, then that would be self-sufficient and you wouldn't need any knowledge. So that's why they put both lives on trial on their own without any mixture of the two. And then they concluded that the mixture was required and the mixture was required because the good is found in the mixture. It's not found in either one. That The self-sufficiency is found in the mixture, not in either one. So that's an important point. And so they come back to that conclusion at the end of the dialogue. I really like the way that Socrates brings that in at the end of the dialogue, 59E to 61B, talking about the good and understanding what we mean by the good. So there's that. And so maybe this is the the part that I wanted to read briefly at the end here. And then, you know, any other thoughts that you have uh, certainly entertain uh, to the extent that folks are willing to remain online. Uh, But I'll just read this part here about measurement. This is where they award the first prize to measure from 65D to 66D. Socrates says... Next, look at measure the same way and see whether pleasure possesses more of it than intelligence or intelligence more than pleasure. Protarchus says, once again, you're setting me a task that I'm well prepared for. I don't think that one could find anything that is more outside all measure than pleasure and excessive joy, while nothing more measured than reason and knowledge could ever be found. So again, you know, here we saw that, I think, last time Protarchus came out, thinking that he didn't need to apply reason that this was obvious. So here he's saying something and he thinks it's obvious. Socrates gets a little bit ironic here. He says, well argued. Well, in fact, there hasn't been an argument. <laughs> Protarchus just says it's, it's obvious. Uh, so Socrates goes on. But now go on to the third criterion. Does reason contain more beauty than the tribe of pleasures in our estimate so that reason is more beautiful than pleasure? Or is it the other way around? Why Socrates, no one, awake or dreaming, could ever see intelligence and reason to be ugly. No one could ever have conceived of them as becoming or being ugly, or that they ever will be, writes Socrates. In the case of pleasures, Protarchus says, by contrast, when we see anyone actively engaged in them, especially those that are the most intense, we notice that their effect is quite ridiculous, if not outright obscene. We become quite ashamed of ourselves and hide them as much as possible from sight, and we can find such activities to the night as if daylight must not witness such things. Socrates says, so you will announce everywhere, both by sending messengers and saying it in person to those present, that pleasure is not a property of the first rank, nor again of the second, but that first comes what is somehow connected with measure, the measured and the timely, and whatever else is to be connected similar. That seems to be at least the upshot of our discussion now, Protarchus concludes. Socrates says then, the second rank goes to the well-proportioned and beautiful, the perfect, the self-sufficient, and whatever else belongs in that family. That seems right, says Protarchus. Socrates goes on, if you give the third rank, as I divine, to reason and intelligence, you cannot stray far from the truth. Perhaps, says Protarchus. Nor again if Besides these three, you give fourth place to those things that we defined as the soul's own properties, to the sciences and the arts, and what we called right opinions, since they are more closely related to the good than pleasure, at least. Maybe so, says Protarchus. The fifth kind will be those pleasures we set apart and defined as painless. We call them the soul's own pure pleasures, since they are attached to the sciences, some of them even to the sense perception. Perhaps, again, says Protarchus, Socrates says, with the sixth generation, the well-ordered song may find its end, says Orpheus. So it seems that our discussion too has found its end at the determination of the sixth ranking. There remains nothing further to do for us except to give a final touch to what has been said. And this is then very shortly thereafter, Socrates makes the statement. Did it not become clear at this point in our discussion that both reason and pleasure had lost any claim that one or the other would be the good itself since they were lacking in autonomy and in the power of self-sufficiency and perfection? I think that talks a little bit about what Darren said about we want to be in a state of uncertainty, maybe, if I understood that correctly, that, you know, that that gives us power to grow and to reason and to have some autonomy. And I I like that use of the word autonomy in there.
3: Yeah, maybe wonder is a good word, too. Wonder, yeah. Yeah. Because it has a positive sort of spin to it. it yeah. It's like we're like going that. somewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's that state of wonder. Because otherwise, what is there to do if we knew everything? Yeah. What is and, there uh, to do?
3: Yeah. And of course, wonder is an important concept in the Theaetetus, the dialogue on knowledge. Like wonder, I think, features in some beautiful passages in that dialogue. So it's yeah. it's definitely a close connection for Plato. Yeah, for sure. And then,
0: you know, maybe an interesting place to end our own dialogue is at sixty seven B, where Socrates says, So will you let me go now? This is, as you said, Darren, earlier, this is near midnight, you know, and they've gone on a long time. Protarchus says, there is still a little missing, Socrates. Surely you will not give up before we do, but I will remind you of what is left. So that's how they end the dialogue in a bit of aporia, as, uh, as always, because is anything complete? Do we ever know the limits? Maybe that's what Plato is trying to tell us in all of these dialogues is we never know the limits. And that's why he never applies a limit to any of the dialogues. There's no conclusions. We're always left to wonder,
3: you know, to use your word, Darren, to wonder. So your thoughts, Darren? I just want to mention, though, but it's it's a little bit ironic that this open-endedness of the dialogues, if we take this picture of Plato's recommendations to heart, that the and the open-endedness. Is actually the point in a way, it's like mission accomplished <laughs> <laughs> once yeah. once we arrive at that state. And so maybe it's no surprise that, like, pretty much all of Plato's dialogues that are actual dialogues, you know, as opposed to you know the apology, which is just a Socrates speech, end in this open-endedness. And um, just a quick comment on this, like ending again, like on I think. You know, at first the dialogue begins with them, you know, struggling to make distinctions in pleasure. Like, how can you possibly make distinctions in pleasure, Socrates? What do you mean good or bad pleasures? It's all just pleasure. But here, I think the dialogue's taking us to this point, both in theory, <laughs> if you follow the arguments, but also in the drama itself, I think we we see Protarchus being um sort of reoriented. I think he actually has he has these other questions now. It's it's almost midnight, or maybe even past midnight. But this point, usually in Plato's dialogues, it's the other person who wants to flee, and Socrates he wants to keep going. But here, it's so interesting, like that. Here, it's almost like showing that oh, Protarchus has been successfully like converted in a way. It's like a conversion experience. Now he's experiencing the kind of intellectual pleasures that the dialogue is, uh, in part, recommending. Um, I think it's, rec- it's recommending like a, maybe a larger, more complex thing. But in part, it's a, it's about how there could be a specific kind of intellectual pleasure that is maybe Protarchus is exhibiting here. It's curious that Socrates wants to conclude <laughs> and Protarchus wants to run off. Another thing that's interesting about dialogue is that Socrates is presenting a very sort of positive view about things too. It seems like he's really actively presenting like a theory. I, I think the intro in the Hackett edition sort of talks about that too, how this it seems kind of uh, unique this way. And so, and we we also know that it's Plato's, it might be Plato's last dialogue before the laws, which is a totally different animal in a way. So it might be his like last attempt at writing a kind of like a typical Socratic dialogue. Putting that together, it makes me wonder if Plato knows he's getting old. He, you know, he lived to an old age. So I wonder if this conclusion here is like a kind of passing on baton in a way. It's like Plato's presenting, he's thought about these things his lifetime and he's presenting this and maybe the last dialogue he ever wrote besides from the laws and it's like, okay, this is like my attempt at putting things together. You know, I've given you this ontology of universe being limited and limited, and there's a cause and all, and there's a mixed and all that. And he's like, okay, so I presented this view, I'm putting it in the words of Socrates, but now he's like passing on the baton to the next generation in a way. It's like Protarchus or anyone else who's read all these works, you know, it's up to you to like go back and look at the problems, you know, I I haven't given you the final theory, I've given you my best try, which is what any human being can only possibly do, Mm. give us our best shot. And it's like, okay, Socrates, it's almost midnight, you know, maybe that's symbolic, too, it's time for him to like shuffle off. And, you know, Protarchus, who used to be in the camp of the sophists, has been successfully sort of converted to this more philosophical life, maybe he doesn't explicitly know it yet, he's just sort of Mm. caught up in the moment. And it's maybe a kind of nice way of looking at this is like, this is Plato's last dialogue and it's ending is symbolic of passing on the mm-hmm. baton that, you know, the philosophical life and this attempt at finding the truth is like protarchus and other people who are reading this can take up this task now. So.
0: I, I love that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so fitting actually. It's. um,
3: Cause yeah. Cause this ending yeah. is very different from
0: other dialogues. Yeah. So yeah. Well, in, my in, fact, about in fact, I, I, I copied the, the pages of this dialogue because I like to make handwritten notes and I want to keep my original copy clean. So. I actually I reached the end of this dialogue and I I wrote down on my notes I said missing page <laughs> like you know did, did I miss copying a page so, you know, Yes I had the same thought I had exactly right. James I had exactly yeah, the same yeah, thought I was like exactly, wait yeah. I, there's something I, missing here Yeah yeah, yeah. I, no, I looked
3: up I even looked up the page numbers I was like yeah, wait is there a missing exactly, page? Yeah. Did the same thing Yeah but uh, you know like what
0: Steve said earlier I think in terms of ideas going on uh, here's Plato you know 2400 years ago writing these ideas and we're still talking about them Socrates presents these ideas we know that Socrates dies but Socrates at least the the character of Socrates lives on. I don't think anybody thinks that Plato wrote what the original Socrates was actually like but he certainly uses all those he uses Socrates I guess as a bit of a meme I guess in all of this but he tries to use Socrates to to draw out that, Wonder in us. And I think that's absolutely great. And what you said about Protarchus growing, I like that. Well, I mean, it started originally. Protarchus enters taking over Philebus's position. Philebus seems to just kind of give up on things. He thinks there's no point of this. And so Protarchus starts taking up Philebus's position. All pleasures are good. But he quickly abandons that. And then we see Protarchus maturing maybe over this dialogue. And at the end, as you say, Darren, he's here. Protarchus is almost looking for the unlimited. Protarchus has kind of given up on this idea that you know the pleasures are unlimited. And he's looking for something else that's unlimited. And he wants to stay past midnight to find it. So maybe this is that sense of wonder in all of us that Socrates has stirred up in Protarchus. And when we get to our next session in two weeks, as I said, we'll look at the Protagoras, we'll go to 328D, and we'll see what Protagoras, the sophist, the very well-spoken sophist, what he does to our sense of wonder. I think this is very interesting juxtaposition of thoughts. You know, in the philabus, which I just, I've fallen in love with the philabus at, at first, like some of Plato's dialogues, I just wondered where it was going, and now I have this much deeper sense Um and and a sense of wonder, actually, in myself uh, as a result of this. And so we'll see where that goes in two weeks. I don't know if there's any other parting words before we draw our session to a close. It's been such a wonderful discussion. And I wow. uh, I would encourage everyone to listen to the previous two recorded episodes. I, I just, you know, the last episode uh, that we did two weeks ago was just astounding. I, I just, I love listening to it. I've re-listened to it three times now, so.
3: I just I should jump in with another further yeah. comment because we're yeah. like yeah, quite ahead. a few minutes yeah. over time but yeah so regarding this conclusion and like uh conversion so I just want to make a comment about how the drama works in this dialogue because I I, I felt like the dialogue kind of like strangely like stilted in a way because like Socrates was it seemed like Socrates was asking extremely leading questions like more than other dialogues and it wasn't very dialoguey like it was it wasn't mm. It wasn't a great dialogue in that sense. But I actually wonder um, when I you know, got to the ending, I was trying to figure out what was happening. I actually wonder if Socrates wasn't actually asking extremely leading questions, but if, we'll, if it was rather Protarchus interrupting Socrates in his attempt to get an idea out. So, just mm-hmm. one example of this, at 60b, Socrates goes, And are we agreed on this point now, just as we were before? And Protarchus says, What point? So it seems like Protarch- Socrates is asking a very leading question. And then Protagoras mm-hmm. at what point? And Socrates says that the difference between the nature of the very, of the good and everything else is this. So the important part here is that it could have been Socrates was just continuing. Like he could have just been saying, and we were also agreed on this point now, just as we were before, that the difference between, like, it could have been here was Socrates was just trying to finish his thought. But Protagoras was just so eager that he just sort of jumps in with these Question. So it makes it sound like when you're reading it as, as a play or whatever, it might seem like Socrates asking very leading questions. But it could just be actually that Protarchus is sort of always interjecting a mm-hmm. question or a point in between Socrates' attempt at getting a full sentence out. So it's <laughs> so anyway. I just yeah. thought like this is an interesting sort of dramatic choice yeah. you might have to make if you're if you're yeah. actually like presenting this. So maybe this seemingly negative quality of this dialogue is actually a positive point that actually has to do with the very theme of the dialogue. So I don't know, I just, I'm just trying to turn it maybe a potential negative into a positive here. That's a great observation. And it's
0: kind of relates to one that I made uh, in our first session on the Philippus, which is that Socrates keeps raising these points in this dialogue as if he's already spoken about them. And Protarchus is always forced to say, well, well what point? Uh, but have we better yeah. not repeat and remind ourselves of certain points. Socrates says at one at fifty nine e, and Protarchus says, "What points? You know, so it, this this happens throughout the dialogue. so it, it's a very yeah. interesting, very interesting dramatic elements in in this. And certainly in the Protagoras, which we'll do in two weeks, there's definitely some dramatic elements. I just you know, Plato, I guess, was a dramatist uh, before he became a philosopher and okay. geometer, and we see this. and I just I love the I love the logic and I love the way that it's been put into words and thoughts and ideas. And we're always left ourselves to to be the judge. so that's great, Steve.
1: So just going all the way back to the beginning, there was a section about where uh Socrates was saying, uh, the ridiculous is a vice." so that that to me, it relates to something um you said earlier that was about whether soul is connected to the universal soul and it's it's a good thing it's a positive th- to think that so you know it's it's the idea that our vision of uh reason is superior like say if a you know a giant comet hit the earth we would all be obliterated t- tomorrow and from our point of view it would be difficult you know like say say one person existed to say well what was the reason for that there's it's it's limited on our evolution to become a, a species at this point. And the the idea that we you know we feel that you know we have a soul and that we're connected to a a world soul, it relates to something I, I posted in the chat. It was about Ernest Becker as a book was called The Denial of Death. And he looks at why people uh deny death and he talks about something he calls as the immortality project or Casa Su, uh, something from nothing, which we create and become part of something that we feel will outlast our time on earth. In doing so, we feel that we become heroic and part of something eternal that will never die compared to the physical body that will eventually die. This gives human beings a belief that our lives have meaning, purpose, and significance in the grand scheme of things. So that's that's the idea that... uh, he uses as his muse sort of is uh, Camus and his his story about the myth of Sisyphus and that's that you know you can you can has, take a position that the universe what we're doing is absurd you don't you don't have to you know say that there's a reason for all this that. And you could say the universe is absurd, but I choose to go forward and, and go forth towards the good because you know that's that's what I decide to do. Mm-hmm. I take full responsibility of it. Whereas this other view where it's you're gonna make this heroic struggle and there is this something else that's out there, this this immortality project that there is a there is a greater something and there is some you know reason for us struggling on here could be tied in, uh, Hyrule Harari uh, connects, uh, you know, humans evolution to our storytelling. And this goes back into the whole idea of the heroic effort, that we're making a heroic effort. So it's an evolutionary advantage for Homo sapiens to be able to come up with grand stories so that we could connect together in larger groups potentially than, say, our bigger, stronger rivals that had the bigger brains like uh, Neanderthal, that, uh, you know, that that might have been our evolutionary advantage. So that's, you know, obviously, that's just a a theory without a lot of evidence. But uh, I think demonstrates the point that there is not necessarily, you know, a reason for everything that our justification for a reason might be, something that's hardwired into us as an evolutionary advantage that if we have this delusion, that there is a greater something that we can continue to, uh, you know, go on with our life and hope that we can, you know, get to that greater something in some form. So that uh, just wanted to throw that in at the end here.
0: Yeah, that's an intriguing perspective. Um, When I think about it, Maybe it's that the purpose of everything is not preordained. What is preordained is that there will be this universal balance. I think Eva talked about that last time in terms of the universe being a system and the system is complete and we are characters within this complete system making our own stories. So we're the ones who are making our own reason and finding our own reason but the the purpose of it all is for us to determine. I think maybe it was J.K. in the the last um, episode mentioned free will, and maybe that's part of our free will is this ability to make the story together and to find together some some reason that it takes us along that path of the good and that mixture where we're having pleasure but knowledge at the same time and exercising memory and recollection. I think that's the key to what Plato is saying in this dialogue and it just it's such a powerful message. I find it so empowering that we could be part of that universal system and share in that reason, uh, in that infinite reasoning capacity, in that unlimited uh, capacity for reason even though we are these limited beings. And so we are left in this complete balanced system capable of a state of wonder and great discovery and great beauty and truth and knowledge in the process. So we are really running out of time, unfortunately, and I'm I'm going to have to close the session. But I I do want to, again, thank everybody for attending and really look forward to uh, getting into the Protagoras in two weeks. It's been a great discussion today, and all three sessions uh, have just been fantastic. On the Philobus, I, I just, you know, again would encourage everyone to listen to these three episodes. Uh, once this this one gets posted in in a week or so, listen to these episodes and see what kind of conclusion you can make of the whole thing, and the idea of reason and the good and how we find limits to pleasures. You know, I I think it goes really, again, as many of Plato's dialogues to the question of whether man is the measure of things. And maybe here he's giving us the philosopher's arithmetic that would equip us to be better measurers of things. And that's maybe why he says measuring takes the prize. So thank you, for everybody, for participating and hope to see you in two weeks. And uh, I'll close the recording, but invite anybody who wishes to stay online for Plato's Café, a uh, casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. And uh, hope to see you in two weeks. Thank
1: you.